in prayer. Father, we thank you for your grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the promise that you made to David as we just read in this psalm. That you will set upon his throne the fruit of his body. And that fruit was found in Jesus Christ. Who when you made a covenant with David, you told him that there will never fail to be a king on his throne. And Lord, through the seed of David, you brought the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who now sits reigning and ruling. And Father, we come before you in the name of Jesus, who is our mediator, who is our advocate, who goes before us, before your throne, who pleads our righteousness before you, who is our advocate our high priest, our mediator. And Lord, we thank you for the mediatorship of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for Christ being the head of his glorious body, which is the church. Lord, your word tells us that there is one body and one spirit, just as we were called in one hope of our calling, that there is one Lord one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Lord, we thank you for this glorious truth of your church, that your church is one. And Lord, we've witnessed the growth of your body throughout this world as it is built up in love. We ourselves are members of that body that one body, the true church consisting of all of the redeemed. Lord, we believe in one Holy Spirit who dwells in both individually and collectively, and he is a divine source of life and power. Lord, we trust in one hope, one way to heaven, because we know that there is just one Lord, one faith, and one baptism, and one God and Father of all. Lord, as we endeavor to sustain our unity in the bond of peace, at the same time, Lord, we thank you for the diversity that exists in the body. Lord, you've given separate gifts to each of us that blend wonderfully together. Lord, you have called all nations, all ethnicities, to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, we long that Christ may be on full display throughout us as his body throughout us as the living church, that Christ may be on display in us as a church and in us as individual members of this church. Lord, we have no desire for the praise and honor of this world because, Lord, the world hates the church. The world hates our Christ. The world hates our God. The world hates our assembling together. Lord, we have no esteem for the superficial and uh, fake and fickle praises of the world. Lord, we have no regard for those works primarily done to be seen by other people. Lord, we desire rather that your spirit would have his way in our hearts. The spiritual treasures we possess have been bestowed upon us as frail and weak earthen vessels so that what shines through honestly comes from you 
and not from ourselves. Lord, your strength is made perfect through our weakness. And your glory is put on display in us. Lord, this is such a great privilege that we have as believers, as redeemed sinners, such as we are. Lord, we thank you for sermons and other Bible lessons that accurately convey your holy word that have come from this church and other churches. And serve as means of grace that enable us to experience your truth, your power, and your love as we open up the scriptures together. Our Lord Jesus said that you are glorified when we bear much fruit. So Lord, we ask, as the sermon is about to be preached, that our hearts will be good soil that receives the seed of your word by hearing, accepting, understanding, and obeying it. Lord, your word has dispelled our doubts, has diminished our discouragements, has convicted us, confronted us, and humbled us, and kept us from any sense of self-importance. Lord, we ask you to depart your blessings on our labors in your name and help us to function in your strength. Pour out your power on your people and may your church be faithful and fruitful in proclaiming the message of salvation. Lord, we are privileged and humbled to be counted as your fellow workers. Lord, give us faithful and devoted hearts. May we be true to your plan for the church. Keep us ever mindful to take care of how we build on that exquisite foundation that was laid by the apostles. Lord, I pray right now, incline our hearts to your truth as it is preached. Guide our steps as we seek to walk in all your ways and obey all your commandments. Lord, we pray also for our other sister churches, other like-minded uh, churches and pastors in our area. Lord, that you may incline their hearts to truth. Guide their steps. Guide the steps of those churches and those men leading those churches also. Lord, hear our request this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. And may all the peoples of the earth know that you are God and that there is no other. In Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Let us turn to the book of Galatians. We're continuing through our sermon series in this book. We're in the second chapter, verses 11 through 21. Justified by faith is our sermon topic, and it's a very uh, meaty uh, subject that we have at hand. And justification by faith is a uh, very meaty doctrine for the Christian church. So uh, my prayer this morning, as I prayed, is that God shows us his truth and his precious truth. Uh, the justification by faith and I'll explain those terms you know what justification means and all those as we get into our message so we're in Galatians the second chapter 
And this is Paul continuing uh, toward the end of his autobiographical section that we looked at the last couple of uh, Sundays. And this is him in confronting uh, Peter. So it reads here in verse 11, beginning. Now when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter before them all, if you, being a Jew, live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel Gentiles to live as Jews? We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. But if, while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners in Christ, therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. For if I build again those things which I destroyed, I make myself a transgressor. For I, through the law, died to the law that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Amen. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died in vain. Man. And this, this passage, of course, as we read, begins with Paul's narrative of his confrontation of uh, Peter in verses 11 through 14. And then it continues with a treatment of the concept of justification by faith, which is where we're going to spend most of our time this morning. You note the shift to the third person, we ourselves, in verse uh, 15. And then finally, the passage concludes uh, with Paul's declaration of having been crucified with Christ. So three main overarching principles of this passage, uh, three things that we see taking place as a kind of an outline or a structure. Is first, we see a rebuke of behavior inconsistent with the gospel in verses 11 through 14. And then we see an affirmation of the doctrine of justification by faith in verses 15 and 16. And then we see an identification with the crucified Christ in verses 17 through 11. So the big idea of this passage is that Paul's authority is demonstrated in rebuking Peter's error. And that justification by faith leaves no room for hypocrisy or legalism. And I'll define that term legalism again 
uh, as I have several times before, but just to be reminded of it, and also the term hypocrisy. So first of all, what is hypocrisy? Uh, you know, we hear this word tossed around a lot, you know, about people being hypocrites. You know, we say a hypocrite is a person who says one thing and does another. That is somewhat true, but not all the way. That's kind of a weak definition of, uh, you know, hypocrisy. We could say that our politicians, our elected officials are hypocrites because they, you know, they run and say they're going to do this, that, and the other, and then when they get in office, they forget about their constituents. That's just lying. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is a little bit more uh, crafty and a little bit more sophisticated. So we have to look at the etymology of the word. I mean, the, the origin of the word. Uh, it comes uh, from antiquity, meaning in ancient days, a, a hypocrite was an, an actor. In old ancient Greek days of acting, acting actually started with the, uh, with the Greeks uh, millennia ago, thousands of years ago. It's not a modern uh, Hollywood didn't invent acting. Just let's just say that. Okay. Uh, but hypocrisy, the word hypocrite uh, was an actor. It was someone who would put on a mask and play a part in a performance. So the word can say, can mean the concealing of one's true character or true thoughts or feelings under the guise of implying something is different. So when you act hypocritically, what you're doing is masking your true convictions and playing a part that is not really yours. So in essence, someone who is a hypocrite is a pretender. They're pretending to be something that they're not to mask the real self. That's what it means to be a hypocrite. It's play acting, in other words. That's what it is. So in this passage here, play acting is what Paul sees Peter and the rest of the Jews doing in Antioch. They put a mask to cover up. They put a mask on to cover what they truly uh, believed about the gospel. So our first principle here is that Peter's hypocrisy deserved Paul's strongest opposition. Because what Paul did was he rebuked a behavior that was inconsistent with the gospel. So looking again at verses 11 through 13, when Peter came to Antioch, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. Remember Paul, I mean, uh, Peter was a Jew. And when James wasn't around, he ate with the Gentiles. And remember, going back to last week, we looked at the fact that during this time, uh, Jews did not view Gentiles uh, in a good light. And again, a Gentile is a non-Jew. And that's basically what a Gentile is, a person who is non-Jewish. So Peter would eat with the Gentiles when James wasn't around and the other apostles. But Paul says when they came... He withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. Those who were the circumcision were the Jews. So Peter was hanging out with the Gentiles, but then when the other apostles and other Jews came, he kind of scattered, like, oh, they're here, let me leave. And Paul says, and the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with him. Notice, played the hypocrite, they, they play acted, they were pretending with him. So they even Barnabas 
was carried away with their hypocrisy. So, first thing to note is that Paul did not shrink back from his responsibility of confrontation. He saw something that was egregious to the gospel. He saw something that uh, would be grievous to the church to be a hypocrite. And the reason why is because Peter's hypocrisy was causing serious problems for himself and for others. His own actions condemned him because he stood condemned. Paul says here because he was to be blamed. So Peter's own actions condemned himself. Hypocrisy condemns the person who's being the hypocrite. It brings them under condemnation. It brings problems. And also, Paul brings up his bad example was leading others astray. He said in verse 13 that even Barnabas was carried away. So what was wrong with his hypocrisy? He acted first one way. And then he acted another way. When James and those certain men came. He began to withdraw himself. And what was he motivated by? Peer pressure. Paul says he was fearing the party of the circumcision or those who were of the circumcision. Now the danger of spiritual hypocrisy is its negative implications. But the root of hypocrisy is the fear of man. Proverbs 29 and 25 says this. And man, this is something I quote all the time. People have fear of man issues. They fear the opinions of people. They fear what people are going to say about them, especially when they do something that is right. But they don't do it because they're fearful of the reaction or the response. That leads to hypocrisy. So Proverbs 29 and 25 says, listen to this. The fear of man brings a snare. It is a trap. It is bondage. It's bondage. But whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. When you fear man, you don't trust God. Because you're more fearful of a person. A person who is flesh and blood just like you. A person who is going to wither away just like you. A person whose life will end just like that, just like yours. The fear of man brings a snare. It's a trap. You have people who live their whole lives fearing people, fearing man. They're, they're, they're scared to stand on biblical truth. Because of what people are going to say about them. What people are going to think about them. Oh you're a hypocrite. Oh you're a bigot. When you stand on basic biblical truths. And many Christians. Many believers are afraid to do that. Because they fear man. Rather than doing what? Trusting in God. When you stand on God's truth. God will keep you safe. That doesn't mean that people won't try to harm you. Or threaten you or whatever. But ultimately you will be safe. Because you're in God's hands. That's how children at school give in to peer pressure. I gave in to peer pressure when I, was a, when I was a teenager. All of us did at, at some point. We did something because we wanted to save face in front of everybody, knowing that's not how we really were. But we do it because of what? We, we were scared of what our peers were going to say. Come on, man, go ahead, do it. 
and you know you're not supposed to, but you do it anyway because you don't want them doing what? Talking about you. That's fear of man. We can do it as adults on our job, in our workplaces. We, we, we're afraid to make our managers or bosses upset. We, we fear them rather than trusting the Lord. So this was the, hoop, the root of Peter's hypocrisy. He feared the party of the circumcision. He feared his fellow Jewish brethren. But what happened because of that? It had a negative effect on the other Jewish believers. It says the rest of the Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. You see, hypocrisy doesn't help. It hurts. It not only hurts those, it not only hurts yourself, but it hurts those around you who see your hypocrisy. It can cause them to stumble also. If you're a Christian and you're around non-Christians and, and, and you're a hypocrite because you want your non-Christian friends or co-workers or classmates or whatever to, you know, still be cool with you. You want to be part of the cool kids club. So you're going to be a hypocrite. And guess what? You're going to cause them to stumble. Because get them see you say, why would I want to be a Christian? They're doing the same thing I'm doing. You're not only hurting yourself, but you're hurting those, you're bringing those down who observe your hypocrisy. Barnabas was even carried away. Barnabas was one of Paul's ministry partners. People who you least suspect can be carried away by hypocrisy. And so this is why Paul gave him strong opposition. And what was Peter's great sin of Besides hypocrisy, his sin was turning from the liberty that he had in Christ back to Judaism. He had liberty in Christ. He was a believer. He was an apostle. But he turned away from that to turn back to uh, Judaism, observing the law, trying to justify himself by works. So the next principle is that uh, Peter's hypocrisy compromised the truth of the gospel. Look at what Paul says in verse 14. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about what? The truth of the gospel. I said to Peter before them all, if you being a Jew live in the manner of the Gentiles and not as Jews, why do you compare Gentiles to live as Jews? This is something to know. Our fidelity to the truth of the gospel is constantly under threat from hypocrisy. When we see hypocrisy in ourselves, we must confront it and repent it. Repent of it. Excuse me, repenting meaning turning away from that sin. Our fidelity to the truth is constantly under threat from hypocrisy. When we don't want to live and stand on biblical truth we become hypocrites so we're constantly under that threat to live out the truth Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10 do not fear him who's able to destroy the body but not the soul he says but fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and body in hell 
But when you are playing a hypocrite, you are compromising the truth of the gospel. So Paul was saying any addition of legalism perverts the gospel says when I saw that they were not straightforward and and that word straightforward, the Greek means out of step. So when I saw that they were out of step about the truth of the gospel. Every time a well-meaning Christian makes up a list of man-made rules to go beyond the Bible. To govern Christian behavior. He, in effect, denies the spirit of God through the word of God is sufficient. I've talked about this before. You have some churches that teach it's a sin to go to the movies. It's a sin to drink alcohol. Now, I said this again about alcohol. The Bible doesn't condemn alcohol use. It condemns drunkenness. But it's not a sin to drink alcohol. You know, you want to have a glass of wine or something like that here and there. That's okay. But not getting drunk. You know, where you fail your breathalyzer test or you, you know, you, you, you're not aware of where you are because after all, alcohol is a drug. But you have some churches that say it's a sin to go to the movies. It's a sin for women to wear pants. You know, we talked about that before. It's a sin to eat in a restaurant that has a bar. You have some churches that teach that. Because you're in the presence of alcohol. Because it's a sin to drink, so you don't need to be around. You don't need to go to Applebee's or, or, or Longhorn or Texas Roadhouse, you know, where they have a bar and serve alcohol. It's a sin. They only even say it's a sin to work in those places. That you shouldn't work around. It. What are they doing? They're adding to. That's legalism. I told you I was going to tell you. That's legalism. You're, you're, you're adding to. You're, you're, you're prohibiting what God has not prohibited. So Paul was saying the same thing about Peter. He was compromising the truth of the gospel. And when you do that, you downplay the word of God. It is the spirit of God that governs our behavior. It is the spirit of God. If you're a believer, you're filled with the spirit. The spirit is going to lead you where you need to go. You don't need extra uh, laws on top of those things. If you feel convicted within yourself to not go to the movies, that's fine. Some people, they don't want to go to the movies. They don't like it. It's a personal conviction. The Bible tells us not to sin against our conscience. If your conscience says, no movies, don't go. My conscience tells me I don't like to be around people who drink alcohol. I don't drink. I don't condemn those who drink alcohol. I just don't like being around people who drink. I've had a drink of alcohol in 31 years. If my conscience convicts me, I say, okay, y'all have y'all, you know, is alcohol going to be served there? Sure. Thanks, but no thanks. I'm fine with that. Because it is against my own personal conscience. Paul actually talks about that in Romans 14. But the point is, is that Peter is invalidating the word of God. He's invalidating the effective word of God, the effectual work of the word. He's compromising the truth of the gospel. If you being a Jew live in the manner of Gentiles and not as the Jews, why do you compel the Gentiles to live as Jews? He's being legalistic. He wasn't being faithful to the gospel. And this is leading up to justification. And we must know this. We must always know this in our hearts. 
that no sinful individual can be justified by God on the basis of obeying his law. No one. Ultimately, it doesn't matter whether we are talking about the ceremonial laws, whether circumcision or baptism or the Lord's Supper, church membership or moral laws. There's no possible way for a sinful person to be justified by works or our personal efforts. Paul says this in Romans 3 verses 19 through 20. He says, now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and that all the world may be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. And I'll explain that in a little bit. The purpose of the law is to show us our sin. There was 600, about 613 laws in the Jewish law code. We can't even obey the 10. <laughs> okay? We should not covet. We should not steal. We should not murder. And you know, Jesus said murder is not just physical murder, but speaking against someone is murder. Speaking evil or ill or, or wishing harm on someone is an act of murder. You're, because murder starts where? In your heart. You should not commit adultery. Adultery is not just physical, but it's lusting after someone who's not your husband or your wife. Lusting after another person. That's the same as adultery. We can't even obey the first ten. We should have no other gods before him. <laughs> okay. We all have violated God's word. All of us are guilty before God. That's what the law shows us. So we're foolish to think that we can satisfy, satisfy God's justice with our obedience or human effort. We're foolish to think that. It depreciates the cross of Christ. It, it makes it nothing. Because Paul said then Christ died in vain, if that's the case. Christ died unnecessarily if a man can gain the righteousness of God through legal obedience. Why would we need the cross if we can just obey God and be right before him? Why did Christ die? He died in vain. So the issue is clear. Did Christ completely satisfy the righteous demands of God on the cross? That's a good question to ask. And what did he mean when he said it is finished? If it wasn't finished. Imagine. If a man was proven guilty of murder. He was pleading at his sentence. And he says. I worked on this illustration hard. So I hope it's good. Your honor. I remind you that I have never had a traffic ticket. I've never stolen anything from my neighbor. I have been a faithful husband. Could such efforts at obedience ever atone for the guilt of murder course not he's on trial for what murder not for traffic tickets not for stealing anything not for being an unfaithful husband so a human judge in his right mind would not acquit him of murder imagine you're six months behind on your mortgage payment and the bank has been very patient with you 
They've done everything possible to bear with you, but you have not paid on your loan, not even the interest. You know, usually with banks after, after 90 days late, they begin foreclosure proceedings. And when the bank comes to repossess your house, will it help for you to say, remember the previous years I didn't miss a payment and I was never late in making a payment. In fact, a few times I even paid extra principal. But does that past performance satisfy the debt? No way. So it works the same with people who try to justify themselves when they stand before God on that great day. Jesus said this in Matthew 7. They're going to say, Lord, I did this in your name. I did that in your name. I fed the poor. I gave kids, uh, gave the poor kids uh, gifts for Christmas. You know, I volunteered for Salvation Army, rang the bell in front of whatever store. I was nice to my friends. I made good TikTok videos that made everybody laugh. Does any of that make you right before God? No. That doesn't mean that those things are not good things. Well, besides TikTok stuff. But other than that, it doesn't mean that those other things are not good things. But those things would not earn you a righteous standing with God. So Paul is telling Peter, why do you tell the Jews, Gentiles, to live like Jews? That's what he rebuked him for. Paul, for him, the integrity of the gospel was at stake. And so what did he do? He publicly rebuked Peter because he made a public error. He publicly corrected him in front of everybody. Public error deserves public rebuke. Private error, private rebuke. So Paul was concerned about the integrity of the gospel. He did not want these Gentiles to think that they had to become Jews in order to be justified before God. Because that's not true, just like we said about the legalism thing. Just because you go to the movies don't mean that you're not a believer. Just because you listen to, quote, secular music doesn't mean that you're not a believer. Now, if you feel the spirit of God, there's certain music that you just won't listen to because of what it contains, because this is not a free grace thing that, you know, you, although you're not justified by works there because you're saved, you can just do whatever. No, the spirit of God in you who lives in every believer guides us. He leads us, as Jesus says, he will teach you all truth. He will teach you whatsoever things I have said unto you. The Holy Spirit teaches us God's truth. That is one of his roles. He will show us. You don't need to be listening to that. You don't need to be watching it on TV. I was telling uh, someone in my family, I, you know, these new so-called horror movies, they're basically just gore movies. I can't watch that anymore. When I was younger, yeah, I can't watch that stuff anymore. It's just, it's too, the, the violence is too gratuitous. It's just too much of it. That don't make a movie good anyway. You know, the best one, the best horror movies is the original Halloween that came out in 1978. And it doesn't have any blood in it at all. 
But now you got these new Halloween movies that it's like they had to make three more of them, I guess. You had those Saw movies that came out a few years ago. It's just, it's just gore. I can't watch stuff like that, my, my, you know, because your, your, your conscience, the Holy Spirit who lives in you says, no, that's, that's not good. That's not God glorifying. You ain't gonna start having nightmares about <laughs> some of this stuff, and you know, you know, scared to go outside at night and take your trash out because you think somebody's gonna drive by in a white van and you know, pick you up and take you off somewhere. You know, one of those uh, cargo vans, the flat slab vans. You know, you, you out in public, you see one of those vans, you start thinking, man, somebody gonna kidnap me. You know, just because you see it, that's what happens though. But anyway, next principle. So this is leading up to justification by faith. Justification by faith unites all, Jew and Gentile, to Christ so that we can walk by faith. So Paul here gives an affirmation of the doctrine of justification by faith. He says in verse 15, We who are Jews by nature and not sinners of the Gentiles, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. For by works of the law, no flesh shall be justified. So Paul is saying here at the beginning, verse 15, that even Jews, just like Gentiles, can only be justified by faith alone. The Jews are Jews by nature. And they're not Gentiles. They're not sinners from among the Gentiles. And again, just to note, the Jews in that day looked at Gentiles as sinners. They, those two terms were synonymous. Sometimes they didn't call them Gentiles. They called them sinners or pagans or heathens. Gentiles back then were called heathens because they worshiped idols. And the Jews worshiped Yahweh. So Gentiles were literally called sinners. But Paul was saying, we're both the same. The same gospel of justification by faith applies to both groups. Now look at this part of the passage where Paul says, nevertheless, <clears throat> knowing that a man is not justified by works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. Even we have believed in Christ Jesus that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, but by works of the law, no flesh to be justified. You may not have noticed. Paul said not by works of the law three times. The same principle stated three times for emphasis. What is that emphasis? What is that uh, statement that we're not justified by what? works of the law not justified by works of the law not by works of the law but by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified he says this three times for emphasis we have to know that we have to emphasize that we cannot be made right with God by doing right just like I talk about people who are unbelievers they feel like if they do all these good things, they do works of altruism, you know, goodwill towards people, especially this time of year, we get into the holiday season. 
where unbelievers, their consciences are convicting them. And they become very giving, very benevolent during this time of year. You know, they do the tours for tots, they, you know, the uh, empty stocking gala, all these things that take place around our area and throughout the, the, the nation. You know, where people want kids to have a good Christmas, which is, you know, like I said, there's nothing inherently wrong with those things. But a lot of people do those things to assuage or to get rid of their guilty conscience. They'll do that. And even, unfortunately, some Christians try to do that, too, because uh, they have not uh, really understood the doctrine of justification. Justification by faith is one of the most important, essential doctrines of the Christian faith. One cannot be a Christian and not believe in justification. It is one of the doctrines that separates Catholics from Protestants. That's part of why we had the Protestant Reformation 500 and what, five years ago? That was one of the uh, things that Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, had fought against the Catholic Church about because the Catholic Church uh, believes in faith plus works. That's why they have sacrament on Saturday evenings. If you drive by Sacred Heart down in Golden Springs, you'll see the church packed with people doing their penance uh, before the priests doing their confession uh, for church on Sunday because it's a, it's, it's a work that they have to do. They have to do their penance. And, and, and the way it works is the, you, you go before the priests and you confess your sin or sins to the priests and the priest tells you you have to do these acts of penance in order to receive absolution from your sins, your sins be forgiven. That's the way it works in the Catholic system. So, you know, you go to the priest, uh, Father, I've been a jerk this week. <laughs> okay. I said a bad word to my employer. Okay. You're forgiven. Go walk, go and walk an old lady across the street. I'm going to use that as an example. You know, that's what people use a lot, right? Go bag some groceries. Go volunteer bag groceries at, at Winn-Dixie or whatever the case may be. You have to do some type of act of penance, some type of extra work to receive absolution of your sins, to be justified, to be put back into right standing. It's, it's, it's called the state of grace. And the Catholic is always in the state of grace. Always. You have to remain in that state of grace by doing those works. But in the Protestant system, which we're in, we're not justified by works. Joseph Pippa in his commentary says, this, I'm going to read this right quick. He says, uh, he quotes uh, Hebrews 9 and 27, it is appointed for men once to die and after this the judgment. He says, because of this truth, one of the most important questions for a person to answer is, how can I be right with God? And I'm going to tell you this now. A lot of people walk around asking that question. They may not tell you, but that's what they're searching for. How can I be right by God? Because their conscience is always convicting them. He says, Psalms suppress their conscience when it testifies of judgment and prompts this question by denying the existence of God while others labor to convince themselves that there is no existence after death. Both of these groups attempts to go against the grain of the testimony of the conscience, which is like dragging fingernails across a chalkboard because we possess immortal souls. Our whole being testifies that there is something more than this present life and thus this persistent question, what do I do about the life to come or how can I be righteous before a holy God 
is always on their minds. They may not tell you that, but that's what's on their mind. People who deny the existence of God, they have, they have to work hard to suppress that truth. Because as Paul said in Romans 1, the evidence of God is everywhere. The things are both visible and, invi and invisible. Things that he has created. We see the existence of God. Look at your own body. You see the existence of God. You know, I was thinking about they had the, the lunar eclipse thing last week. And, you know, actually the moon doesn't actually turn red, by the way. <laughs> it's the atmosphere that does it. I, I said, you know, I said, no, the, the moon doesn't actually turn red. But they call it the blood moon or whatever. As if the moon actually turns red. But it's the atmosphere that does that. But anyway, do you know all the moon cycles, all the phases of the moon are predictable? You look on the calendar of a year, you'll see all the moon phases laid out. Why? God designed it like that. He designed the moon to rotate around the earth as the earth rotates around the sun. in this galaxy, in this solar system rather, that rotates around this galaxy, that rotates around in space. We're rotating in space right now. Think about that, we're, we're moving in space. But God has designed this earth so intricately that we don't fall when we go to, we don't fall to earth when we go to the bottom of the earth. We're still on the top of the earth. That all, the earth has never lost water. Because there's a water cycle. You know, you don't know about water vapor. goes up to be clouds. And the clouds get full and rain water back down on the earth. And it flows into the streams, into creeks, into rivers, into the ocean. And the water cycle begins again. That was intricately done by God. It takes a lot of suppression to deny that. When you sit and think about it. So those who want to assuage their conscience, they first have to deny that God exists. But they still try to be righteous before him, although they deny that he exists. So people that do suppress that question, they answer it incorrectly. They'll say, as long as I seek God, whoever he might be, then I know that all is well. Others say, if I'm good to my neighbor, or what's the popular saying, if my good deeds outweigh my bad then all is well between God and me. Friends, that is a lie. I'm sorry to put it like that, but that is not true. How do you know that your deeds are good? And how do you know that your deeds are bad? According to whose standard are they good? Good is not an arbitrary term. Good has to come from some type of objective, right? How do you know something is good that you do? How do you know that something is bad? What measure are you using for what's good? I can say, you shouldn't walk that old lady across the street. Let her walk for herself. Oh, that's mean. How is it mean? By whose standard? Is it mean to me? That's good. See what I'm saying? When you deny God, you can't really say what is good. It is God who defines what is good. So when people try to justify themselves by doing good, they don't even know what that good is that they're doing or who it comes from. So they can't be made right before the God that they deny. So what is justification? I want to define it right quick. Uh, justification is a judicial word. It deals with 
court. It's a legal term. It's, 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 uh, the Bible uses it primary, uh, primarily in the verb to justify. It gives courtroom language. It expresses uh, freedom from guilt and condemnation. Proverbs 17 and 15 says, He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous both alike are an abomination to the Lord. So the opposite of justify is to condemn. Con condemnation is a judicial act also by which a judge or jury declares the accused to be guilty. Now the opposite of condemn is to declare innocent. That's justification. Another example of justify is found in Exodus 23 and 7. God says of himself as the judge, keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent or the righteous for I would not acquit or justify the guilty. God emphasized that he would not justify the person who breaks his law. So to justify is declared is to be declared righteous in a judicial sense. And the Westminster uh, Shorter Catechism says uh, this. It says justification is an act of God's free grace. In other words, it's a once for all judicial action done by God. We can't justify ourselves. We can't stand before God and say, I'm innocent. When the Bible tells us that we're conceived in sin. David says himself in Psalm 51, in sin did my mother conceive me. From the moment of fertilization, you're in sin. From the moment of fertilization, guess what? You need a savior. When you're born, you need a savior. When you're a cute little one-year-old and two-year-old and show all those pictures on Facebook to your friends, that's still a what? Viper? in a diaper. If you don't believe in total depravity, you haven't had kids. Amen. So justification is something that everybody needs. So Paul talks about the nature of it. He says here, justified by works of the law, but by what? Faith in Christ. Faith in Christ is the nature of our justification. In justification, God does two things. One, he forgives all sin. And he declares the person to be righteous in his sight. It is a declaration from God. The catechism continues about justification being an act of free grace. It says, wherein he pardons all our sins. He accepts us as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Christ. Imputed, imputed means to be credited to our account, imputed to us and received by faith alone. So our justification comes from Christ. He is the nature of our justification. Paul says justified by Christ, by faith in Christ in verse 16, Jesus Christ. God forgives all of the sins of the one whom he justifies. When we're saved, we're immediately justified and we're declared not guilty before God. 
That's how justification works. God acquits the guilty because who's guilty of sin? We are. God acquits us. He says, you're free. You're not guilty. It is a total act of mercy by God that he justifies. Paul said this in Romans 4, verses 6 through 8, as he quotes Psalm 32, 1 and 2. It says, just as David also speaks of the blessings upon the man to whom God reckons or accounts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds have been forgiven and whose sins have been covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will not take into account. That is justification. God does not take our sins into account. But God does that through faith in who? Jesus Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 21. He, God, made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now the ground of our justification, Paul says, is faith. So the nature of justification is in Christ Jesus or by faith. In, I'm sorry. In Christ Jesus and the ground of it is faith. Now I'm going to say this. It's not our faith because faith is not a work. Faith is a gift from God. The faith that we have to believe comes from God. Our faith is in Christ Jesus. Paul sets Christ before us as our only hope of salvation. The faith that we have to believe comes from God. It's not our faith. We don't have it. We can't muster up enough faith to believe in God. If so, every single person in this world believes in God. God gives us the faith to believe. Now, when you read the covenant law, you know, we're studying through Deuteronomy. And we're going to get to the section where we go through all the laws. But God's covenant law demands two things from us. Number one, perfect obedience. And eternal punishment for disobedience. Christ, as our covenant head, came to satisfy both of those demands. Christ came and perfectly obeyed the law. He's the only one who could. He obeyed the law of God perfectly, and he gave himself as a sacrifice for the sins of his people. So why does God accept us as righteous? He accepts us as righteous because of the obedience of Christ. He, set, he accepts us as righteous because Christ fulfilled the perfect righteousness that God demanded. No other person can do that. We had to have a savior who was perfect, who could perfectly satisfy the demands of God's word, God's law, because guess what? We could not. So because of Christ's perfect obedience, God accepts us as righteous. It is imputed to us. It is credited to us. Christ's righteousness is credited to our sin 
account. And his righteousness takes away our debt of sin. And we are reckoned righteous in God's sight, as Paul says in Romans 5 and 19. You can take this to the bank. What I'm about to say or everything, but you can take this to the bank, too. I wrote this note down. Christ and Christ alone has satisfied the demands of the law. God accepts his payment of the penalty of sin in the place of ours. Remember, Christ died in our place on the cross. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. God does not simply say, I will forget your sin. No, God is holy and he cannot justify the wicked. How then does God justify us? He does so through his son, taking the place of the wicked and satisfying the justice of God. So because of that, God, for the sake of his son, may justify the wicked. You know, we're reading uh, our assurance of forgiveness, 1 John 2, where it says Christ is the propitiation. He is the appeasement. He appeased the wrath of God that was on us. He's the propitiation. He's the appeasement for our sins. He satisfied the demand of death that sin brought. Because what are the wages of sin? Death. Christ satisfied that wage for us. Therefore, when we believe in God, that is credit to our account. And God takes away that sin. So if you're a believer this morning, when you sin, because you will, 1 John 2 and 1 told us what we have an advocate with the Father. Paul says in Romans 8 and 1, I quote this scripture a lot, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember, condemnation is the opposite of justification. You're either justified or you're condemned. Because we're in Christ, because we're justified, guess what? There's no condemnation. That's, that feeling that you get when you sin is not condemnation, it's conviction. The Holy Spirit does convict us of sin. He convicts us so that we go and run to the cross and plead for forgiveness. And turn away from those sins. Last section here, last principle, we see an identification with the crucified Christ. But if we will seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves are also are found sinners. Is Christ therefore a minister of sin? Certainly not. So Paul is building on the story of the confrontation with Peter from verses 15 to 16. So in verse 17, he asks again, I'm repeating, different translation. If while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners. Is Christ then a minister of sin? Of course not. In other words, if we are saved by grace and not by works, what will keep us from lawlessness? In Romans 6, Paul states the same objection when he talks about being uh, slaves to sin. 
He says, do we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. The fact that we're justified, we're not justified to sin. <laughs> okay. We're justified to live a holy and righteous life before God. Paul shows that salvation by works promotes sin, but salvation by grace promotes holiness. And that salvation by works destroys grace. Then he said, for if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. What did he rebuild? He rebuilt fidelity to the gospel. He rebuilt what it meant to be a true believer that you don't have to be what justified by works. What did he destroy? He destroyed the false gospel people. So then he gives a new principle here in verse 19. For through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. What purpose does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions to the seed. I'm sorry, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in the wrong chapter. I'm, I'm, I'm looking at chapter 3, I'm sorry. Verse 19, he says, for I, for I through the law died to the law that I might live to God. Remember, the law is designed to convict us of sin and to show us our need for Christ. The law irritates our sinful nature. We either strive to earn God's favor by it or we rebel against it. Those are one of the two things that people do. And because they can't obey God's law, guess what? They get frustrated and they begin to rebel. And Paul talks about this in Romans 7. Joseph Pippa says, Sin lies slumbering in the heart until the law says, Thou shalt not. And then suddenly there is a great war. We see this reaction in our children. This is an illustration right here. They never thought twice about doing something until we tell them not to do it. You have a good talk with your kids before church. Tell them what not to do. Then they come to church and they do it. You send your kids out to a party or, or to an amusement park on a field trip or whatever. Don't do this. Don't do that. Blah, blah, blah. And guess what? They do the very same thing. They do the exact opposite of what you told them not to do. That's how the law is. Paul said in Romans 7 that I didn't know what it meant to not covet until I read the law where it says you shall not covet. The law uncovers our sin. It shows us our sin. That's what the law does. That's why we can't be justified by what? Obeying the law. Because the law condemns us. The law tells us we can't obey it. In and of ourselves, by ourselves, by our own strength, we're going to always violate parts of the law. The law says, in the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. How many of us find two or three witnesses when someone is accused of something? None of us. We're going to do what? Take that word for it. But the law says, if you can't sell it with one person, go find what? Two or three more and bring them. No one does that anymore. We just take, we just take an accusation against somebody and just run with it. 
put it on, put a little screed on Facebook or whatever the case may be, just accusing somebody without establishing it as true with two or three other people. But the law says do what? The law says do that. So that shows us again that the law condemns us. And Paul wrote about that in Romans 7. The law tells us we shall not and we rebel. The sign says no trespassing. And we what? The swimming pool, the, the, the shallow end says no diving. You still see kids diving in. Although it says no diving. Why? Because we're lawbreakers. We are lawbreakers. So Paul says this. Through the law I died to the law that I might live to God. And then he ends it in a good landing place. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live. But Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh. I live by faith. In the son of God. Who loved me and gave himself. For me. For righteousness comes through the law. Then Christ died. In vain. Our union with Christ in his death. And the resurrection makes this new life of faith possible. Faith is the characteristic function of the new life. We can have any continued dependence on the law because it compromises the grace of God. And it minimizes the atonement of Christ. And he said that at the end, for righteousness comes through the law... And Christ died in vain. So it is the faith that we have in Christ that he gives us. That is the function of our new life. Not by trying to do the works of the law. Amen. Application just a couple questions here. Which is more important? Peace. In terms of not making a scene. Or being disruptive or maintaining the purity of the truth of the gospel. We talked about that earlier with fear of man. Which one, is, which one should be more important? Maintaining the purity of truth. Some people want the peace. They don't want to offend anyone. And in, in a minute you're being intentionally offensive. But the gospel is offensive. It tells us that we're sinners. No one wants to be told they're a sinner because we all think we're what? Good people. When the Bible tells us there's none who does good, no, not one. No one wants to know that because we're arrogant. We're full of pride. We don't want anyone to tell us that we need a savior. We can save ourselves. We're our own God. I can be my authentic self. I don't need God to do that for me. That's what our flesh says, that I'm God. And that God doesn't need to tell me what to do with my life. Because it's mine. It belongs to me. He can't tell me what to do with my body. It's my body. It belongs to me. No. The important thing is to maintain the purity of the gospel. 
Number two, do we fully comprehend how our actions can impact the lives of others? My wife and I was talking about this uh, last week. Someone made a, a comment to her about, about her. And, you know, you never know who's watching you. You never know who's watching you. It don't mean we're going to be perfect. But we need to be consistent in our walk. We're going to fall. We're going to sin. We're going to sin in front of other people. But the gospel tells us to show humility and say, forgive me, I sinned. I did not represent my Christ well. Whether it's a believer or unbeliever, forgive me for sinning in front of you, sinning against you like that. That's the gospel. That's showing humility. That's showing that you're not perfect. Because if you're doing it, you're being a hypocrite. And number three, does the gospel, the doctrine of justification by faith, lessen our motivation to live a life of holiness and righteousness? No, it shouldn't. It should, it should increase it. Our desire to live a life of righteousness and holiness. Knowing that we have been declared righteous by God should free us. It's not a burden because we know that we're not condemned. But it's not a license to sin. Because if you live in sin, the spirit of God is not in you. Remember, it's the difference between struggling in sin, struggling with sin, and living in sin. Living in sin means you're just giving over to sin and you just don't care. You're not saved. A true believer is going to struggle with their sin nature. They're going to struggle with sin. They're going to confess their sins. They're going to ask God, please deliver me from this body of sin, as Paul said in Romans 7. Who can deliver me from this body of death? Lord, help me. Lord, strengthen me to not give in to that same temptation over and over again. That's the struggle that believers have. But if you have that too, well, I might as well do it anyway. You know, become apathetic and indifferent. Then know the spirit of God is not in you. So being justified motivates us to live a life of holiness and righteousness. Not in order to earn God's righteousness, but because we're justified. We don't do it to earn it. We live a life of holiness and righteousness because we are justified. Paul reminded us to live out, to walk out our own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is him who works in us, okay, to do his good pleasure. It is him who works in us both to will and to do his good pleasure. God works in us to do his will and to do what is pleasing to him. We don't do anything to earn that right standing with God. Amen. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this great and weighty doctrine. Thank you for your word. Father, I pray that you use what you spoke to us from heaven this morning. Use it, Lord, to encourage the saints. Those of us in here who feel like sometimes we're, we, we, we condemn ourselves when we sin against you, Lord, that is a sin because we're negating the fact that we have been justified and we have been declared not guilty 
that we are not under condemnation. So Lord, help us as believers to have that gospel assurance that we are forgiven. We are not guilty before you. That Christ bore our guilt. Christ bore the shame of sin. Christ bore the condemnation that comes with sin. And Lord, I pray for those who are not believers. That you send the spirit to convict them of their sins. To, to let them know that there's nothing that they can do. To earn a right standing with you. No matter what works of altruism or goodwill or benevolence that they may perform no matter how nice and kind they try to be to people. Those things are not bad in and of themselves. But Lord, no matter what they do, they cannot be made right in your eyes. Only through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray the unbelievers that hear this. That you convict them of their sin. And that they repent, which means they turn away from their sins and turn to Christ and call on him to save them. And they will be saved to the utmost. Because, Lord, to the utmost, Jesus saves no matter what station a person has in life. They can be saved if they turn to Christ. In whose name I pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand and do.